Hi, I'm Beth Fuller, and you're listening to the Food Adventures Podcast. I know the world can feel intimidating or scary at times, but I'm here to tell you it doesn't have to be. Through the lens of food, we can learn so much about one another, celebrate our differences, and maybe eat some tasty food along the way. Are you ready to do this? I know I am. So let's go on a food adventure together right now. Hey, everyone. You're listening to the Food Adventures Podcast, and I'm your host, Beth Fuller. This is episode 11. Wow, 11. Here we are. This is crazy. Today we're talking about meat, but before we get started, put down whatever you write with, and don't take notes. Go to my website for all the notes, elizabethrfuller.com. It's under the podcast show notes. Do you want to work together? Hit me up. Let's go on a food adventure at gmail.com. Do you have questions? for the podcast about anything food related or even not same email address let's go on a food adventure at gmail.com find me on instagram let's go on a food adventure tag me in all of your food adventures any even home cooking food adventures you're taking i love seeing them it's inspiration for me as much as you let's get started you guys meat talking about meat so you know how we all have our own first words that we said growing up as kids mine was hot um, because we had these exposed radiators. I have them now in my house. It was an old house in Rhode Island. And my mom would always say, hot, hot, Bethy, hot, you know. So my first word was hot. My brothers, on the other hand, my little brother, Andy, Drew man, Andrew, Drew, um, goes by all of his aliases. <laughs> his were no and meat. <laughs> so, <laughs> and more like not, no, I don't want meat, but no, I'm not going to do anything that you're asking me to do and meat because all I want to do is eat meat. We came from a family that my parents definitely made us try everything under the sun growing up as kids. So now I have really no reservations when it comes to food and trying new things, but also like I, my palate is I, I don't have any of those like weird texture issues with food. That, not that that's weird. I think, you know, people have the right to eat and feel the way they want to feel about food. But I'm much more, I, I eat everything, right? I guess is what I'm trying to say. Whereas I know other people growing up, like I have this one cousin and she won't kill me for saying this because it's just a joke in the family who like literally only ate chicken nuggets for the majority of her childhood and part of her adulthood she's now definitely into more like vegetables and smoothies and she will eat fish and certain other kinds of chicken but she still is a little bit on the picky side when it comes to food I love you Emmy I'm sorry (laughs) I had to say it so for what I'm saying is I feel grateful that my parents really made us try everything when we were young and since then now I'm Uh, always exploring new food. And when it comes to meat, you know, we eat it a few times a week. Like I've said many times before, we get all of our meat from a meat share um, that's local here in Massachusetts, hence what we're going to talk about later with our guest. And uh, they're called Walden Local Meat. And they deliver it to our house frozen. So we eat off of that. And then a lot of vegetables, we'll get fish from um, our local fish market. But 
we make an effort, I make an effort for us to eat vegetarian a couple of days a week just to give diversity. And I really like vegetables, but we're not talking about vegetables today. Today we're talking about meat. So I have a handful of your questions that I'm going to attempt to answer. And then I'm just going to bring on our guest because he's amazing. He's going to answer a lot of your questions. And we talked for a really good amount of time. So I want to make sure that we capture all of our conversation. All right, let's dive into your questions. Dan on Instagram writes, I have a family of four and it's hard to come up with meals that everyone will like and that will come together quickly. Do you have any weeknight dinner ideas that can work for a kind of picky family? Well, sort of. So when I think picky, and I don't, I, I, I like to think of this almost like a challenge. I like to think of things then that are, more assemble yourself things like bowls, like a Greek kind of inspired bowl or um, an Asian, like a deconstructed sushi bowl with like cooked shrimp or something or a taco bowl or even just straight up tacos. Then people can kind of go through, like put everything out almost like a mini buffet in the kitchen and then people can pick and choose what they want and put it on their plate. I don't know how old your kids are, so if they're still too young to make to make proper food decisions, then maybe you can, you already know what their preferences are. So you can kind of make something for them on their plate and then give it to them. And then you and your partner or spouse can, um, obviously eat whatever you want to eat because you're adults, or maybe you make your, your partners or your spouses as well. I know sometimes I will make sure that I do that for my husband, like, because he's not, um, he, he sometimes doesn't like to eat and it's going to sound so silly and he might murder me for saying this, uh, a lot of vegetables. And so I will like make his dinner plate. Cause he comes home later than, um, sometimes then I want to eat. So I'll eat and then clean up and put something in the fridge for him and then he can pull it out and throw it in the microwave or whatever. And I'll make sure I put vegetables on his plate because, um, if he was left to his own devices, he probably, probably wouldn't put them on. Whether he eats them or not, I don't care, but I at least try. <laughs> anyway, he's going to murder me for saying that because it makes him sound like he's seven. Um, all right. So yeah, bowls. The other thing I think is kind of fun is like lettuce wraps. So you can go Asian, you can go not Asian with it. Just doing some kind of lettuce wrap, either with um, Boston bib lettuce or iceberg lettuce, and then people can make their own that way as well. Or you can, and then it tricks them into eating more vegetables. Um, I like a good kitchen sink fried rice, I call it, and like just go through the fridge on like a Friday or a Saturday and see what's left over and see if I can make it work in a fried rice. Because like bits and bobs of like different veggies that are uh, left from things that I might've made throughout the week that I just didn't use up all the way. Or if there's like <clears throat> a little bit of cooked protein that makes sense to go in a fried rice, that kind of stuff. Then I just toss it all together. I'll make the rice actually maybe midday, let it cool because fried rice, the key with making it and making sure like it doesn't get gummy is you use day old cold rice in it. Um, it makes a huge difference. So there's that. The other thing, and I don't know if this is falls under like the picky category. I'm just going to say it because it's like weekday meals that I love to make is, and this circles back to my husband not wanting to eat his vegetables. Sorry, honey. 
it's he's gonna murder me no he's not he's gonna laugh he's gonna laugh um is I will make mac and cheese but then I will hide a vegetable in in the mac and cheese and not hide it like I fully disclosed to him oh there's butternut squash in this but like the it, it also helps me not eat a ton of dairy in the mac and cheese but it's still like ooey gooey delicious so this is a pinch of yum recipe all you do is you cook the macaroni um no pause back this party train up in a pot you saute like a little bit of onion she puts in some garlic I don't do the garlic and then cut up some butternut squash throw that in saute it up for a second add stock boil it until it's like fork tender put the butternut squash the onion and a little bit of the stock in a really good blender waz that up and it makes like a beautiful creamy sauce then add in a tiny bit of milk <clears throat> pull it off the blender and you've just cooked pasta, pour the sauce over the pasta, mix in like a sharp cheese. Um, I use Gruyere just because, and like maybe a little bit of cheddar, but you want like a really good sharp, almost like fondue kind of cheese because that'll help hide the flavor of the butternut squash, which is really just like sweet more than anything, but it has this beautiful orange color to it because of the squash. So it looks like classic Velveeta-y sort of mac and cheese, but way better for you and tastes really good. The other thing I do is um, sometimes I'll make a green mac and cheese and in the blender, um, same kind of steps where I'm like sauteing a little bit of onion, throw some spinach in, throw some broccoli in, throw, you know, whatever other greens, if I have kale or, or whatever, in <clears throat> maybe peas, leeks, again, whatever. A little bit of stock, boil it all until it's um, cooked down. Throw that in the blender, waz it up. Again, a little bit of milk, some cheese, mix it all together. And it makes a gorgeous green mac and cheese and it tastes really good and that one sometimes I even bake in the oven afterwards and um, it gets a little dry and you could put some breadcrumbs and maybe a little parm or something on top it's super good okay two more recipes uh, spaghetti carbonara I think it is one of the best ways to use I mean if you can get guanciale you want guanciale which is the jowl of the the pig um, it's Italian it's cured it's delicious if you can't get that pancetta is your friend if you can't get that well then go for bacon get really good high quality bacon super easy I think it's kid friendly because it's literally spaghetti bacon and eggs that's and cheese and that's it don't put cream in it I will link a very authentic recipe on my website and please try to make it the classic Roman authentic Italian way you will thank me it, is, it comes together super duper quick, good high quality eggs, good high quality pork product, cheese, good high quality cheese, sorry, high quality is the word of the day, I guess, and <laughs> spaghetti, oh my gosh, it's easy, I think it's a crowd pleaser, maybe make like a light easy salad on the side too, so it's not super heavy, but I think that's awesome, and then last but not least, mom, Skinny Taste Harissa Chicken Meatballs with Cauliflower Rice, I think is delicious. I'll link that recipe on the show notes. If you don't know how to make cauliflower rice, it's super easy. So you're going to take your head of cauliflower, peel all the leaves off. You want to core it. An easy way to core it, depending on like how you're going to use the cauliflower in this purpose, you don't really need it fully intact. So I take all the leaves off, I cut it, 
right down the middle and then I use either a paring knife or a sharp knife and you can see the core once it's cut in half flip it open so the halves are facing you the flat sides are and then just take your knife literally cut the core out and when you're making cauliflower rice the key is really you just want to use the florets you don't want to use um the stems as much so you're going to kind of carve all the florets off of the cauliflower put it all in your food processor pulse it a few times until it's kind of like a coarse crumble set it aside and then in a pan for this recipe at least i sauteed a little onion um, with some olive oil and then tossed in the cauliflower rice just or the cauliflower tossed it really quick warmed it up added in some fresh parsley a little bit of um, lemon zest, a little lemon, just like a drizzle of lemon juice, and then um, some toasted chopped almonds, some toasted, no, mm, I think it was, I put some apricots in, some chopped up apricots that I had, and that was kind of it, and then set that aside. Oh, I did sprinkle a little bit of sumac on it, which is just this beautiful lemony kind of spice. It's delicious, um, and set that aside, and I'll link her meatball recipe in the show notes, super, super easy. And you can use like a jarred harissa and really the mean, I think it's Mina harissa um, in the jar. It's not spicy at all. So I think it's kind of kid crowd friendly too. And then it's just, it's chicken, ground chicken, or you can use ground turkey or whatever ground meat you like to use. So thank you for the questions, Dan. I hope this helps. All right, our next question comes from Abigail on Instagram. I wonder if she goes by Abby. One of my best friends growing up was named Abby. Um, she's still alive, so she, her name still is Abby. <laughs> okay, sorry. I want to be more adventurous with cooking and cut some meat, but I don't know where to start or if I will like it. Do you have any ideas? Of course I do, Abigail. So I think with cuts of meat, um, you know, some people get nervous when it comes to diving into offal, which is like more of the innards of the animals. Um, I think eating snout to tail is wonderful because so many restaurants only use certain cuts of meat and there's so many other great cuts that you can, once you figure out how to utilize them, that have a ton of flavor and that are really good and it makes it more sustainable when you eat meat because then you're eating the whole entire animal versus all these other parts. What do you do with them, right? So... I'm just going to touch on just a handful of them and I'll put all this on the website, but I think beef shanks are great. Um, Some of these cuts, they need time and they just need a little extra love. So with a beef shank, um, with a short rib, a beef short rib, you're going to braise them slow and low. Um, Beef shanks, I love making osobuco. It's like an Italian beef stewy kind of thing with tomatoes and some aromatics, um, some of like a mirepoix kind of um, holy trinity or um, sofrito uh, is basically like onion, celery, and then some other vegetable. In this case, I usually put in some carrots, but I love and some red wine and you just stew it down for a few hours. They become so luscious and tender and the the sauce is so flavorful and you can put it over like creamy polenta you could just eat it in a bowl on its own with some crusty bread um with short ribs beef stew i mean they make like the ultimate beef stew kind of thing um another cut that i don't think 
is as well known, but I fell in love with because of our meat share. It was the first time I had been exposed to it. To ex exposed to it is the bavette cut of um in the beef, and basically it's kind of like it'd be very similar to flank steak. I think it's actually a little more tender and it's got tons of flavor. And if you've ever cooked flank steak before, the key with cooking flank steak is you don't want to cook it for very long, like marinate it and then grill it and be done with it. Um, <clears throat> but it's how you slice it. So you always want to slice this and flank steak against the grain. So if you see the grain of the beef is going, you know, from, and you hold your cut of beef and like the lines of the grain of um, the connective tissue is literally going from like uh, north to south. So then you take it and you want to cut then from, <laughs> I'm trying, I'm like literally showing you with my hands right now. To, I'm trying to explain it. So, <laughs> but it's hard to explain it to you without showing you physically. So wish me luck. So you're, yeah, if the lines are going north to south, then you're going to spin that. So then they're going east to west and you're going to cut north to south. Does that make sense? <laughs> Probably not. I'll, I'll try to find a picture and put it on the website. Um, other cuts like pork butt. You see that. It's actually not the bottom butt of the pig. It's actually part of the shoulder. But for some reason, it gets the name pork butt. So pork butt, pork shoulder, another term. And I think it's just a little bit further down on, on the shoulder. It's called the picnic shoulder of the, the pig. And all of those are so great for like smoking and making pulled pork with. And um, again, low and slow, they can take good, big, bold flavors. And then they just shred beautifully. Um, I think another underutilized cut on almost any animal is their cheek so like a beef cheek a pork cheek fish cheeks the cheek is such a beautiful cut on any animal and it is so unbelievably tender when cooked properly and it's got so much flavor because think how much uh we even utilize our cheeks right like it's a muscle that gets used over and over and over again when we're talking, we're chewing, we're singing, you know, we're yelling at somebody, not yelling. Who yells? No, I'm just kidding. But you know what I mean? So I think the cheek is great. And then bones. Think about bones and these animals. Roast them. Make the most beautiful stalks with them. And then you can reduce some of the stalks down and make just these concentrated flavor bombs that you can make sauces with that you can make your pork soup dumplings with because you're going to make, because they make like kind of like a really sticky sort of stock. Oh my goodness. And they're so easy to use. Um, I know we're all familiar with bacon here in the U.S. So pork belly, which is where bacon stems from. A lot of people, I mean, pork belly made this huge, had a big renaissance in, I don't know, maybe five or six years ago, I feel like. It was everywhere you saw it on burgers. You, everyone used it. I love the way Koreans make pork belly. It is one of my favorite Korean dishes. They like thinly slice it. They marinate it with gochujang and a handful of other things. And then they um, saute it in a wok with usually some kind of vegetables and then obviously like tons of kimchi 
and it's super and like hot peppers and it's super spicy, kind of sweet, kind of funky and fermenty. Oh my gosh, is it good. If you can go to a Korean restaurant, get the pork belly, you will thank me. It is so stinking good. I think that's what we're going to have for dinner tonight now. I'm salivating. All right. So I will put all of these, these things on the website as always. Thank you for your question, Abigail. I hope this helps. All right. Let's try one more. James from Facebook asks, or says, I'm always looking for shortcuts when I'm making dinner because I'm usually exhausted by the evening and cooking sometimes feels like I'm climbing up a mountain. Do you have any dinner shortcuts? Yes, get takeout. No, I'm kidding. All right, my all-time favorite hack when it comes to putting together a quick meal, dinner, lunch, whenever, get one of those pre-roasted chickens from the grocery store. <laughs> they are so good. They... <laughs> fit in so many different meals that I mean I can list off a hundred of them but they all start with a pre-roasted chicken from the grocery store I feel like it they're oh they just I don't know what magic they put in them my god do they taste amazing so I would start there because then you can use it in like enchiladas you could throw it on top of whatever salad you like you could even get one of those pre-made bag salads from the grocery store um a cold noodle dish I love from one of the Skinny Taste cookbooks, she has this incredible cold um, cucumber noodle with a peanut sauce. And then I just put on some, you know, pre-cooked roasted chicken on top. Dinner comes together, I'm not kidding you, in maybe 10 minutes on that night. And it's so stinking good. You can throw it in a pasta. You can make even a chicken salad sandwich, dare I say. Um, so I do that. I made this for lunch yesterday and I took a bunch of pictures of it for a client um, for something else last week, but the Bon Appetit tuna niçoise toast. Oh, if you like any of these flavors, this is a, like, you need to make this and you need to make this now. Uh, all it is, it's literally the components of a tuna niçoise salad, sort of, on a toast. So... The base is a little bit of mayo and some sherry vinegar and like a pinch of sugar. Schmear that on the, the toasted bread you just have, whatever kind. I had like a rustic French baguette kind of whatever. Then in another bowl, a little bit of shallot, tomato. Um, I throw in the black olives, like those olive, the um, black oil cured olives without the pits. Throw those in. This bowl, um, a can of olive oil tuna. I only get the tuna that's in the olive oil. I think it just has way more flavor than the stuff in the water. Um, so drain the oil out of the can and then just throw this in the bowl. And then another little tiny pinch of sugar, salt and pepper, some fresh dill, some a squeeze of lemon, a little lemon zest, and um, I had for parsley. So I threw some fresh parsley in that. Mixy mixy. Put that on the toast. Make a hard-boiled egg, open that up, cut that up, put that on the toast. Done. Oh, man, is it good. It, like I said, if you like tuna niçoise salad, then you are going to love that recipe. Um, another hack that I like to do is, so our meat chair gives us a bunch of, they always have super fun sausages. And one of the ways that I use the sausages, like they have this great ginger garlic sausage. I'll take that out of the casing. And if I'm feeling frisky and I want to make dumplings or um, if that's a little too much work for you, then 
I use it in like a stir fry almost, or I'll turn it into like little meatballs and I'll put it in a soup and then buy the dumplings at the grocery store and like make like a wontony meatball-y soup with some Asian veggies in it. But like the sausage is seasoned so well, I don't have to add anything really else to it. And it has a ton of flavor. So I use pre-made sausages in that way. Again, like a hot Italian, same thing, take it out of the casing, saute that with a little bit of um, onion or garlic or shallot or whatever and some cooked broccoli rabe, toss in some marchetti, done. Dinner's done. Super easy. So James, I hope that helped. And if I think of any more, I'll put them on the show notes. All right. The moment you've all been waiting for, our guest. He, he's amazing. You're going to hear him when he talks how amazing this man is. He has always been very passionate about what he can do to help solve environmental problems, that are especially related to agriculture and energy. Him and his wife, Kristen, started this company, Walden Local Meat, back in 2013 here in Massachusetts. And it has now grown to be able to service families from basically Portland, Maine, down to parts of New York and central New Jersey. This company has such a beautiful holistic approach that's kind of felt throughout everything that they do. And honestly, it tastes really good. This is not a paid sponsorship. This is just a company I fully believe in and that I adore and love with all my heart. So without further ado, please, please, please welcome Charlie Cummings, the founder of Walden Local Me. Hey, Charlie, thanks so much for being here. Hey, Elizabeth. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure. And I, again, can't thank you enough. So before you jumped on, I gave a great little intro and background about Walden and yourself and, and a little bit about the CSA. But, you know, as the founder and the owner of Walden Meat, I have to ask, what did you do before you started a meat CSA? I was just going to say, you know, although our program is very much a CSA in nature from the consumer perspective. We don't typically use that term ourselves just because I think it's something that's sort of reserved for, um, you know, individual farms, whereas we work across 75 different partner farms in New York and New England um, and very much see ourselves as uh, the aggregator as opposed to, you know, an actual farm ourselves. That's really interesting. Um, And I also, I mean, what some people might not realize is that you guys don't charge your membership upfront for like a year's cost of, of the meat. Like we pay monthly, which is great because, you know, you can always reduce what you need if you didn't need a lot of meat that month, or you can increase it if you know you're going to have parties or, or whatever. Uh, and I think that's a really interesting point because with traditional CSAs, I do a vegetable one that you pay fully upfront prior to the season starting. So the commitment really to do what your company is doing as a member is minimal compared to an upfront CSA for a vegetable share. Yeah, you can certainly just do one month at a time and try it and shut it on and off as you see fit. Um, We do allow people to prepay and a good portion of our members do for in return and for a discount if they prepay for six or 12 months. Um, And what that allows us to do in many cases, we're making significant prepayments to our partner farms, whether that's in the form of supporting their purchases of uh, feed or um, starting chicks for a chicken operation or 
in many cases, we also purchase cattle and place them under contract on area farms to reduce the capital commitment of the farm itself. Wow. Um, so we, we still do a lot of those types of activities to support um, our, our partner farms from a cash flow perspective. But um, I felt from a member perspective, um, and I can get back to sort of the, the starting story, but for, from a member perspective, that felt like it really significantly lowered the, the barrier to, to entry at the beginning. 120%. I agree with you. As so, somebody who does it. So, <laughs> yes, I totally agree. So what made you decide to start the meat CSA? No, sorry, the, the Walden local meat. <laughs> Don't call it a CSA. I no, it's fine. That's totally fine. Um, so, um, like I said, I started my career in, in management consulting at the same time uh, while I was a consultant, uh, racking up a lot of frequent flyer miles. I was also, um, I helped to start and then served on the board of an advocacy organization, a nonprofit that was in support of um, the Cape Wind Project, which at the time was the first offshore wind farm proposed in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and for about 10 years, actually, um, you know, we worked to uh, intervene in the regulatory process and change public opinion on the project. And unfortunately, we were unsuccessful in, in getting the project over the finish line. Um, but it was an interesting experience for me because in the consulting world, I felt like we always had all the best resources and people. And uh, we were working on really interesting day-to-day challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, but the sort of ends we were achieving just didn't get me fired up. Um, you know, this cable company getting another point of, of market share or, or what have you just uh, wasn't uh, getting me up in the morning. Totally. You will. Whereas on the nonprofit side, I sort of had the opposite experience where we never really had the right resources. Uh, every, the, the sort of day to day was a real struggle. Um, and yet the ends we were after, I was super passionate about. And so I had these, this sort of dichotomy of these two experiences. So I went back and got an MBA and spent a lot of time with a number of different uh, venture back companies in clean energy. Um, and one of them I ended up uh, staying with for uh, three years or so that was doing composting actually, uh, which- That was to harvest power, right? Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Um, which I still think is a really interesting uh, business sort of right at that intersection of agriculture, energy, and waste, which, you know, those three industries are really at the center of a lot of different environmental problems, but climate change in, in particular. Um, and uh, started Walden with 50 pilot families uh, back in the end of 2013, early 2014. And it was really born out of a few things. One was just a a sort of personal need. Um, My wife and I had looked for products like this and always felt like we were compromising on convenience or quality or or cost. And um, we were in fact uh, initially members of this local meat CSA and it uh, required us to pick up I think every other Saturday between 10 a.m. And, and noon. And we didn't even have kids at the time. And that was just like an insurmountable <laughs> thing. Like we just always missed it. Totally. Uh, and so it just felt like there was a ton of value. And, and at the same time, 
you know, there was no way this, this farm um, was going to be able to deal with the inventory management challenges and logistics and customer service of really growing that business. And for most of our partner farms, that's, that's really the case um, where it, those functions, marketing, inventory management, logistics, mm -hmm. distribution, uh, those are really different businesses and they tend to not be an area of expertise or really even an area of interest for someone who is really good at uh, production. Yeah. And uh, your average grass-fed beef producer, for example, is dealing with already a really complicated business that's exposed to uh, commodity pricing on two sides, usually, plus the vagaries of nature and weather and soil health and genetics mm -hmm. and breeding. Um, there's just, there's a whole host of things that they're sort of required to be experts in. Um, and that in and of itself is quite a bit more complex than your average business. So to layer these other things on top of that, uh, again, I, I just felt like, you know, was, was most producers were not going to be happy with the results of that kind of integration. Mm -hmm. So at the same time, my wife had actually been working on an organic vegetable farm that had a small livestock operation. This was a classic, uh, you know, we moved, um, we were based in California for a couple years. Uh, I was out there working in the Central Valley in California mm -hmm. for, for harvest. And when we moved back, um, we read a book together called The Dirty Life, <laughs> sure, uh, sure. which is a great book, very much romanticizes the small farm experience, yeah. though. Yeah. Um, my wife was so taken by it, she spent the summer working on a farm, uh, and then a summer became uh, two summers, and then it was full time, and then it just was like never stopped. Wow. So um, I met a lot of people in New England agriculture by virtue of, of her experience. And that's sort of also where the, the opportunity came from. So it was both this, this personal need that we felt like there were a lot of other consumers that looked like us that were looking for this. And then on the other side, this, this very clear uh, producer need for that kind of uh, support. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it would seem like it would kind of be like an uphill battle for a farmer who's not into sales, who doesn't want to deal with any of that. And, but they have this beautiful product, like how do I get it out to the masses? And you filled that void in that. I think it's beautiful. And it just well, happened. So pun intended organically. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Nice. You like that? Um, you, were, you were built to be a podcaster. <laughs> Thank you. Um, it's interesting, like one of the more intricate challenges embedded in there is, uh, is sort of unique to um, animal production as opposed to vegetables too. So, um, you know, with vegetables, you have the challenge of uh, perishability. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, with protein, we get around that by uh, vacuum sealing and, and flash freezing the product. Um, and, but the other challenge is, um, carcass balance. And so we could, if we wanted to, you know, sell much more ribeye than we actually do today, but we're fully committed to a whole carcass program. 
And what that means is for every ribeye we purchase, we have to sell, you know, X number of pounds of ground beef. Um, and that's sort of unique to, um, you know, animal, animal agriculture as opposed to any other crop. Um, and it's a really acute challenge for the farm. So even if they want to, and, and, and by the way, there are a handful of farmers that do want to take on those things and have a direct business and have mm -hmm. been successful in it uh, by and large. And so I don't mean to, to say at all, mm -hmm. it can't be done. Um, for those who are they're really interested in it, there are definitely some that have been successful. Um, and uh, the, the real challenge then becomes this inventory balance because it's hard to find a consumer that sort of wants every part and piece of the animal. So our share program is unique as compared to something like an Omaha steaks, for example, mm -hmm. because we're using some, some pretty complex algorithms to figure out what appears in everyone's share each month. And it's a balance of meeting their preferences and exclusions and requests um, while also serving our own need to balance the whole carcass. And by the way, we also have, uh, you know, a largely separate wholesale business that helps on that front too, largely on moving, you know, ground beef, for example, people eat a lot less ground beef this time of year in mm -hmm. January, February than they do in July and August. And so, um, that balance is, is a core part of our business too. That's great. What do you think now I'm being a member and I have already said, this is not a sponsored podcast. I fully just love your products and I just <laughs> wanted you. to chat with you. So I know why your product stands out from others and why your steak or your, your meat, your chicken tastes way better than something I'd even get at Whole Foods. But why do you think your products stand out? Oh, that's another important part of like the whole starting point. Um, how, how we even got introduced to products like this, my wife and I, um, uh, there's a friend of ours in Southern New Hampshire that uh, has a pasture-raised chicken operation. Mm. And when you taste, uh, particularly chicken and pork, I've found uh, that's raised truly outdoors on pasture and it's a significant, you know, up to 20% of their diet is forage the taste of that product is just so remarkably different than what you get in a grocery store. And so that, that was even before, you know, I told you the story about, um, you know, getting started at the very beginning, that was even sort of before that is just experiencing those, the taste of those products. Oh yeah. Um, even your eggs. Like I, I get two dozen eggs every month and the yolks are what you'd see in like Europe, you know, it's that like gorgeous, colorful, it's not that pale yellow yolk. I mean, and they taste so much better. Like you taste an egg, you actually are tasting an egg when you eat one of your eggs versus something you might get just no, no I'm not knocking what is in grocery stores. Cause people, that's what some people eat and there's nothing wrong with that. And if you can, whatever your money can afford, you know, just eat whole beautiful food. But I think your eggs are really amazing. I'm not going to lie I, uh, every morning. appreciate that. There's, that brings up a really important point too. So uh, one, just as an aside, mm. I, I find it interesting that there, there's a seasonal difference in the eggs. And I don't know if you've perceived this, yes. but certainly the, the hens spend more time, uh, you know, undercover and that takes different forms at different uh, farms 
in the winter time versus in the summertime where by and large they're outdoors uh, at least the 12 hours of daylight. Um, and what, what that does to the egg flavor is as a result of a changing diet, for example, you'll just see much higher beta carotene content that they're getting from the grass in the, in the summertime, particularly the late summertime. Yes. And so like, you'll see a very deep orange yolk, uh, you know, commonly in August and September when the grass has a really high sugar content, mm -hmm. whereas in other times of the year that that color and taste profile will, will change pretty dramatically. Um, which I just find interesting. You, you brought up a point about, um, affordability though, which is an interesting road to go down. And one that I'm somewhat sensitive to, to be honest, because, mm -hmm. you know, the goal here is not to produce a product that is only affordable for the few. Mm -hmm. However, the reality is now because the industrial commodity industry is subsidized in a variety of forms. So on one hand, um, you know, the, its dependence on oil, for example, is subsidized in a number of ways at, at a federal and in some kind, in some cases, a state level as mm -hmm. well. Um, but it's also subsidized in the fact that the environmental costs of production in that sort of setting are largely borne by the public, where the gains of not having to account for those costs are largely captured by uh, these these large companies, which mm -hmm. own, you know, the top five, I think own, uh, 80% of the market or so. Yeah, I know. And so that, that's, that's a difficult dynamic in which to compete. Um, but I often sort of talk about us in the, in the context of Tesla, um, which may seem like an odd comparison, but from a sort of business strategy perspective, they started in the context of, you know, batteries are still really expensive. We expect the cost to come down over time, but we're going to start with a premium car mm -hmm. um, and with the hopes of over time introducing a mass market car as we increase in scale and reduce that cost base. And I would describe our strategy as very much the same. You, you just simply cannot uh, compete at a small scale. Um, but I do not think the production methods that, that we utilize um, are any less efficient at similar scale uh, mm -hmm. to, to the big guys. So anyway, that's just an important point is like, uh, you know, it, it very much is right now more, more expensive to produce products this way. Um, but I think there's a more uh, complicated story behind that. I agree. And I mean, I think you have, uh, and if you want to, if you could speak a little bit about it, your 1% hungry program, I think is a great thing that you guys are doing to help with like people who, where there's food shortages in our community. And it's a start. It's a start. It's a start. Um, yeah. Yeah. So we donate every um, month, 1% of our volume uh, to uh, local soup kitchens. Um, and that's across our whole area. Um, you know, we have partners in uh, Connecticut, uh, New Jersey, uh, the greater Boston area. So we try to spread those over our entire market area mm -hmm. um, and hope to grow that 
commitment over time. In, in addition to the 1% for the Hungry program, though, um, we're also increasingly utilizing the wholesale side of the business that I mentioned to, mm-hmm. um, you know, get those products into communities that um, where our consumer shares are, are not yet accessible. Mm-hmm. No, that's great. So you mentioned you work with 75 farms right now, correct? About, yeah. About. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we actually can answer a couple of listener questions if you don't mind. Let's do it. All right. So Lisa in New Hampshire would like to know, what are these animals fed and how do you keep everything so consistent from farm to farm since they're located all over New England and New York? It's a great question, Lisa. Thank you. Uh, so let me let me tick the consistency question first. So one thing that's interesting about the program, like I just described the taste of the eggs as in fact quite inconsistent in, in a really good way. Yeah. Um, and I think that the same is true to some degree. So for example, our beef are 100% grass-fed, grass-finished. They don't eat anything but grass. And as a result, you will have um, a higher season of season, uh, seasonal um, flavor differences Um, because there's quite a bit of a a nutritional difference in cut hay that they're receiving in the wintertime versus early season um, grasses in the spring versus Mm -hmm. late season grasses in in the sort of late summer, early fall. There's really quite a a difference in the bricks values uh, of grasses as a different time of the year. And that will manifest itself in different uh, flavor profiles in, in the meat. Um, and so consistency is an interesting question because on one hand, we are trying to achieve that. And I think successfully largely achieving that just in terms of cutting consistency and, uh, you know, trying to get the packages roughly the same size and, uh, you know, you want consistency in those sorts of places. Mm -hmm. And that is hard to achieve. It's certainly much easier to put all the pigs under one roof and feed them very exacting diets. Yeah. Um, And that's how the the large scale commodity industry achieves the consistency we've become accustomed to. If a pig is 5% you know, underweight relative to its peers, it's segregated and fed a higher um, carbohydrate diet until it catches up. And so in that sort of environment, it's no wonder you can achieve that level of consistency. So uh, I guess my answer is on one hand, there's seasonal inconsistency that Mm -hmm. we want to celebrate and think is really interesting uh, and part of uh, eating, you know, within your local food shed. And then, and then the other part is we do spend a ton of time trying to drive consistency where it, where it is important. Um, and that would be more on, you know, the, the cutting, um, as well as the diet. So of course, on the beef side, for example, that requires quite a bit of, of monitoring. Um, not to say that we don't trust the, our, our partners, um, but there is some degree of sort of ongoing technical assistance that we want to offer folks and, and check in on. And, um, you know, there, there's also a level of, um, trust that our members are placing in us. And so we, 
you know, do feel the need to audit our farms and, and do that kind of thing to ensure the integrity of the product. Um, and that's, that's how we drive consistency um, in terms of meeting the standards. Pigs and chickens, uh, to answer the other part of your question in terms of what, what they're fed, um, pigs and chickens are omnivores. So as an aside, I always find it interesting that both of those products are mentioned. Uh, you'll see it on a label in a grocery store. Now that I'm telling you, you'll yeah. see it maybe too often, but uh, you know, there, there's a claim that's out there that says vegetarian fed yeah. uh, on pork and chicken in particular. So what that actually is saying is um, it's not uncommon for a typical feed mix for chicken, for example, the protein content is actually derived from ground up feathers and bones from other chickens. Mm -hmm. So, oh, the food chain. <laughs> I mean, chain. on one hand, I think we can aspire to more than feeding chickens other ground up chicken. <laughs> Um, and then you eat it. Like, that's, <laughs> it's so gross. Yeah. So I love yeah. the, I love the phrase, um, you know, you are what you eat, but go one step further. You are what you eat eats. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so the, the other thing that sort of is bothersome about the claim of an all vegetarian diet is it's, it's an omnivore. The animal naturally eats a, a combination of meat and vegetables. Uh, it's not unusual if you have a small family farm to feed your chickens or pigs sort of all your kitchen scraps, both mm -hmm. meat and vegetables. Um, and so um, you won't see that claim on our products. No. Um, and that really reflects this for both of those species, about 20% of their diet they're getting from forage. So that's grass, bugs, mm -hmm. uh, sort of tubers they're rooting for in the ground, whatever they might That's be. That's awesome. On the pasture. And then the other portion of the food for, for those two um, is a local grain mix, um, which uh, in some cases is grown by the farm themselves. That's like the, the ideal scenario. We have a um, handful of partner farms in, up in Vermont that'll do that where there's actually no outside grain coming into the, the property. They're, they're harvesting it all themselves. Oh, wow. Along with, um, you know, Stonyfield, for example, has a, a couple and Ben and Jerry's have a couple of um, production facilities uh, up there that where they have um, dairy whey, um, which is a great supplemental organic dairy whey is a great mm -hmm. supplemental feed for pigs. Um, so, Anyhow, the reason I say all that is uh, there's quite a bit of um, variability there in the diet, depending on, uh, you know, where the farm is and, and what's Absolutely. available. Yeah. There. And I mean, I know, for example, I've gotten heritage pork from another farm in New Hampshire. My parents live in Milford, New Hampshire, which is near farmland. And they they have an apple orchard. And so they feed the pigs all of these apples and chestnuts and things that then you're picking up in the nuances of the meat. And you get that with yours as well, that you, if you don't over sauce or overdress any of your product, you really taste what the animal is eating. And that's so important. And I think, like you said, it's a beautiful thing to celebrate that it changes season to season because you don't want it to taste bland. Like that's what you're getting with supermarket product that's been overfed 
force fed that it's got this very bland one note, whereas yours bounces around in a beautiful like crescendo kind of, <laughs> you know, not to get too geeky yeah. on food, but it's kind no, of the I reality it. of it. That's a great way to de- describe it. So it, it's interesting that you say that because uh, a couple of thoughts come to mind. One is we had, we participated in this food fest a while back in, in Boston when mm. that was uh, yeah, so- socially possible. Um, and we did a taste test sort of one-on-one with the just industrial. And in fact, we chose like an or- organic uh, industrial product from sure. Whole Foods and cut it up. Um, and all we put on it was salt. And I think it was like 90% of the people, and this is not a scientific survey or anything, sure. but- I won't hold you to it. 90% of the people chose, chose our pork chop and you really could taste the difference. Like it was pretty straightforward. And I think what's going on there um, is, you know, you mentioned, we talked about the consistency of the feed and the sort of uh, scientific exactitude there that's being used. Um, But it's also the breed itself. So Mm -hmm. you mentioned heritage breed uh, pigs up in New Hampshire and, um, What's interesting about the industrial pig is this is the Yorkshire breed. So think, um, you know, if you've seen the movie Babe, it's the mm-hmm. pink, it's a pink pig. It's what everybody thinks about when they think about a, a farm pig is that pink pig. That's really only one breed of hundreds of different um, types of, of pigs. And it's a breed that has been uh, over almost a century now, Mm -hmm. um, been really aggressively bred to perform in a feedlot industrial environment. And what I mean by perform is convert feed, largely corn, into meat at a very high ratio Mm -hmm. with very little fat. And so when you see these, these are the pork chops that I grew up on, like they're not, not one streak of internal fat in the middle of the pork chop. Covered in shake and bake. Oh my gosh. Either shake and bake and (laughs) and or choking them down with applesauce. Like I remember them getting caught in my throat and just pork chop night was never one I was looking forward to. and when you have a, a heritage breed pig, there, there's this intermuscular fat that sometimes will look more like a, um, a steak, a beef steak. Yeah. Uh, and that's because they're this heritage, these heritage breeds or combination of heritage breeds um, that have not quite been so standardized. So mm-hmm. that gets back to the question of consistency. Yeah. And in, in that case, like, again, it's not always the goal. Um, And these heritage breeds have so much to offer in terms of the richness of the flavor and the intermuscular fat content. The cost is they typically take longer to get to maturity, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, sometimes two, three months longer, which is a really significant cost. Um, But it's a really different product. Yeah, it's worth it. I agree with you. So we have some more listener questions, if you don't mind. Mark in Massachusetts would like to know, why is it called Walden Local Meat? My favorite question. Uh, I have like a theory on it, which I don't know if it's true or not. I mean, there's Walden Pond in, I live in Mass, lived here for a long time. I grew up in Southern New Hampshire, but so there's Walden Pond, which, you know, the, the writer is named the pond is named after the, the, the writer. So I'm guessing you either grew up 
on the pond, near the pond. That That's my theory, because I know you're from Massachusetts originally. Yes, so um, sort of, you're close. <laughs> okay, good, I had to guess, I had to guess. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Walden, Walden Pond, so Walden the book, Henry David Thoreau. Oh, yeah, uh, sorry, yeah. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that's, that's in Concord, Mass. And uh, just something I, you know, so, some early environmental ethos uh, that from that group of people, uh, you know, Thoreau, as well as um, his colleague uh, Emerson, mm -hmm. uh, who was sort of very much a spiritual advisor to him in this transcendentalist movement. Um, and there's a lot to be said for these, in fact, really timeless ideas of just living in sync with nature and living simply and um, breaking, breaking things down to their core essence, which is really what I take from some of Thoreau's writings. So it's, it's really mostly that, is that one, it was this local landmark that most people in New England have, have heard of and sort of represents the region and, and its mm -hmm. history. Um, but two, it resonates with me from an environmental perspective and it's sort of consistent with the company's overarching mission and, and core purpose. Um, but I also, you know, started the company in that area. Uh, I lived in, in Carlisle, which is right next sure. to the Concord. And yep. now the company is still based in, uh, in Billerica. So mm -hmm. just right there in that Metro West. Area. Right on that 128 belt, baby. I yep. know it well, I know yep. it well. Uh, now, I know you mentioned, you touched on this a second ago, but we're going to loop a listener question and, and full disclosure, it's from my husband who is an executive chef and he wanted me to ask you this. So uh -oh. Todd in Massachusetts <laughs> wants to know, do you sell wholesale to local restaurants? Well, uh, you can tell Todd. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we do. Uh, obviously, that business has uh, been, um, I will yeah. say, challenging over the past year or so. Uh, <laughs> but we we do we have done that quite a bit in the past. Um, the nuance to it is um, for sort of what what uh, may seem obvious reasons. We don't sell ribeyes to restaurants because mm -hmm. we have a whole animal program and sort of I view that as stealing from the share program, if you will. So our members sort of have a first claim to everything. Um, and in some ways that makes what we can sell on a wholesale basis more attractive from a cost perspective, because it's really, it's helping us achieve that inventory balance. Mm -hmm. um, but it does make it, you know, it, a, a partnership with a high-end restaurant that only is looking for tenderloin and ribeye is not a good partner for us. Mm -hmm. No, that makes sense. I mean, I agree with you. I actually love your whole carcass and I buy your bones and make my own like broth. Like I went on this big soup dumpling kick because I used to, we used to live near Boston and can't go into Chinatown right now. Anyway, it doesn't matter because of COVID. But so I was like, I'm making soup dumplings. I'm going to figure out how to make it. So I got your pork bones, roasted them, made the like jelly -y kind of aspic with it. It was so amazing. delicious. It was so amazing. Good. Um, all right. Back to listener questions. I digress. Nancy in New Hampshire would like to know, how do you select the farms you use for the meats and other products? Great question. Uh, so when we first started, that was easy. Um, these were, you know, 
sort of friends of friends or folks that knew my wife. Um, and there was a level of trust there just by virtue of, um, you know, th these were folks that we knew that were really supportive of uh, what we we're trying to do. And um, the, this, this for them was a really important outlet that they saw as one that, that could grow really significantly over time. And it's largely played out that way. However, as we continued to grow, we needed to add more farms. I mean, that starting list was probably half a dozen people. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we have definitely grown it dramatically over time. And with that larger network has come additional bureaucracy, if you will, around, um, you know, maintaining our standards and auditing and, and reviewing those standards over time. And importantly, from an environmental perspective, we would arguably having less impact if we had said, um, you know, stuck with that sort of uh, maybe ideologically consistent group. Mm -hmm. And we've had to sort of grow beyond that and in many ways grow beyond preaching to the choir, if you will, and work with some farmers that in fact initially were not meeting our standards or they were doing, you know, they were raising corn fed beef for someone else. And I view, you know, as a result of our commitment transitioning their operation to a grass-based uh, regenerative uh, um, operation that's focused on soil health and, mm -hmm. um, you know, pasture management, that's a huge step forward in terms of moving the whole region towards more sustainable and more regenerative practices. Um, so that's been really cool to see as the company has continued to scale and grow because we've needed to grow beyond that, um, initial group. Mm -hmm. And, and by the way, that's not to say that there's a lot of folks that have, um, you know, grown their operations really significantly, um, alongside us. So mm -hmm. it's, it's not to say that those folks got, got left behind, um, at all many, in many cases, uh, you know, most of those folks are still with us. No, and it's good to grow and change as humans and our business. And, you know, there's so many, I'm very passionate about the environment as well. And doing even the smallest little thing makes the hugest difference. It's like dropping a little pebble in water and the ripple effect that then will pour outwards. So you just helping maybe re-educate someone, a farmer who didn't necessarily know how to maybe navigate those grass-fed waters and you're just re-educating and, you know, giving them a little capital in order to do that, to make the better product, which then the ripple effect floods out. So kudos it is, to you, my friend. It, it is so funny that you said that about the uh, ripple effect in the water, because we use that same analogy internally. Mm. Um, we talk about that a lot. I'll give you another example too. Yeah. Um, so it's very common if you raise uh, laying hens for eggs, mm. it's very common for you to, um, most, most people may not know this, very uncommon to hatch your own chickens. You buy day old chicks um, and that's sort of how you start and grow and replenish <laughs> your flock over time. Now, 90 five plus percent of the day old chicks available for purchase for uh, these sort of even small scale laying operations are de-beaked. Um, and that means 
immediately when they are almost immediately when they're born, their beak is burned off. This is like, you know, people, some people are like, well, it's a chicken. I don't feel the same way about it as I do a dog. And I think that's kind of BS. Like this is a a live animal that is obviously sensitive to pain. And um, it's, I think sort of a barbaric practice and it's totally unnecessary. The reason that we do it is because when you have chickens in close confinement, Mm -hmm. um, they tend to be very uh, predatory sort of uh, evil (laughs) animals. Like they will kill each other. Um, And so this is the practice that has been determined by the industry to prevent this. And by the way, Another example of that same thing, sorry, I digress. No, keep going. Is the, is the gestation crate for pigs. Mm-hmm. So not uncommon for a large breeding sow to crush her piglets. That's a, the, you know, the mother might weigh uh, somewhere between 400 and 800 pounds. And mm-hmm. these, these little piglets weigh a pound or two at birth. And mm-hmm. so if she leans up against a wall in a, in a pen, it's, it's not uncommon for those piglets to be crushed. And so the industrial answer to that is, well, let's just put them in a cage, a crate that they can't stand up in and they won't oh. crush the piglets. So you've got these, these breeding sows that are raised most of their breeding life in, uh, in a gestation crate that they, it's not just that they can't turn around in, they cannot stand up. And that's not a life. This is an animal that is like smarter than a domesticated dog. So yeah. it's just ridiculous. And, and in fact, gestation crates are illegal in a handful of states. It's, and Massachusetts is one of them. Mm. However, those states tend to not produce very many pigs. Right, so they right. will never be, in my view, illegal in, for example, North Carolina that produces, you know, millions of pigs. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, the, the debeaking, the reason I brought that up and I'm, I'm hopefully getting to something positive. You are. Yes. I can feel it coming. I feel it bubbling up. Uh, is, uh, you know, we, we wanted to work with this egg farmer, um, that had an existing flock of laying hens that were all debeaked. And it's frankly just such an industrial standard at this point that most people don't even question it. And we said, if you agree to transition your flock to entirely fully intact beaked chickens, we'll purchase, um, and I forget what the number is, but some large portion, if not almost all of your eggs. Um, And helped this person to make that transition, which included them going back to the supplier and negotiating that, which is a fairly unusual request. And I just, I view that as like a tremendous success of sort of moving this thing forward by setting different expectations. And they all originate from our our member families. Like Mm -hmm. if folks were not demanding those sorts of things, it would be much harder for us to go, you know, back to the farmer and further up the value chain to to sort of force those kind of issues. So that's the positive side of the story is- No, and that's um, great. And it shows how much your membership really does make a difference. Like by me buying your product, it's not just like, oh, I'm eating something good. No, it's so much more than that. You know, exactly. like, and I, to me, that's super important. So yay us, look at us go. Yeah, I mean, to be clear, you can probably hear it in my voice, but like, 
for me, this is as much a business as it is like an advocacy platform. And we're trying to use it to uh, move the ball forward, so to speak, um, from an environmental perspective, from an animal welfare perspective. Um, By the way, if you want me to get really philosophical. Mm. (laughs) Go for it. Stop, stop me when this goes No, off no, you're real. good. I, I've got my eye on the time. I know you got a hard out. So no, you, you've got time. Keep going. But it's, uh, I, think it, I think it's really interesting in the current sort of political context we find ourselves in um, because we bridge these two worlds. Um, people don't realize it, but there are parts of Vermont, New Hampshire, upstate New York, Western Massachusetts that look quite different from uh, you know, downtown Boston or yeah, even, yeah. Uh, you know, Newton, Wellesley, um, yeah, yeah. name your sort of suburban community. And it's, it's a really different way of life. You don't have to go to um, the middle of Iowa to find that. Mm-hmm. And um, by trying to tell these people's stories, trying to tell them, um, you know, what, what makes these lifestyles and businesses work, and why they're important to uh, maintain in our local community, why, those act, why we value local agriculture uh, around us. It's just so important to tell that story and to sort of try in our own small way to bridge that divide. Um, and especially in, in the current climate we find ourselves. Just to give you another like surprising mm. Thing that occurred to me in the context of the uh, less so the 2020 election, but the 2016 election. In conversation with a lot of farmers, this may surprise some folks, um, but they were sort of indifferent between Bernie Sanders and Trump. That that just, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there that we don't have to get into today, but yeah. I just find that really fascinating because mm-hmm. that, you know, there folks in urban areas would never put those two in the same bucket. But, um, you know, for many folks I talked to, um, they, they saw those two candidates in the same light. And I found that really interesting. Wow. I, we can unpack that with cocktails another time, but man, oh man, that is, (laughs) I can't, I, I, yeah, I don't have, I can't even because I am. (laughs) And I guess, Trump 2016. I mean, I we don't need to die. I won't. I won't even get started because I can't stand the man. And he can go. Oh, I'm a I'm a Trump supporter. I know you are. Sorry about that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm kidding. Just to make that completely clear, uh, that is not the case. If anyone was confused by that, dripping with sarcasm. (laughs) All right. So Liz in Portland would like to know where does your lamb come from, and when will it be brought back to the membership? Uh, Which is an interesting question because the majority of lamb in that we eat in the U.S. is coming from either like New Zealand or Colorado. And so to have it local here is awesome. Yeah, uh, it's something we're working really hard at. Um, We had worked with a handful of suppliers, one of which was up by Liz, up by Liz in Maine, um, and and a handful of others across New England. And just in the midst of the pandemic, we, we just simply had a breakdown from a supply chain perspective and couldn't get the numbers we needed and didn't feel like it was fair to sort of maintain it at minimal levels. It sort of just, it wasn't making sense. Um, 
And so we do expect to have it back and we're working hard to, to figure that out. Um, it probably comes back more in the form of specials than it does as a core share component. Mm. Part of the rationale there too is um, lamb. So if you think about the processing costs, um, they're actually pretty similar for a, a, a lamb, one, one lamb as they are to one head of beef or one pig. Okay. And a, a lamb, uh, you know, weighs a little bit less than a hundred pounds, whereas a pig is closer to 250, whereas a cow uh, is, you know, north of 600. Um, and I, this is without, now we're getting a little graphic, but without head, hide, and hooves. So uh -huh. we say on the rail. Okay. Um, and because those, because there's a certain amount of fixed costs associated with processing there on a significantly smaller animal in a small scale slaughter facility, that cost is just really, really high. And it's mm. hard for us to make lamb work for that reason. Um, and so in the midst of the pandemic, when we sort of had this breakdown, we took the opportunity to be like, hey, how do we make this work differently? Because it, it's also sort of not, not working the way we, we have it. Um, and so... Uh, long story short, we're working on it. It probably comes back in a different form. The other funny thing about lamb is people have very strong opinions on it. So yeah. I, I haven't met very many people who are just sort of meh on it. You either really hate it and never eat it, or you really, really love it. And it's a really, really important sort of special occasion thing. So mm -hmm. um, anyway, short story is we're, we're working on it. Awesome. And you guys have amazing specials that I take advantage of every month. And so that's something that I'm excited to keep my eye out for your specials. Uh, just a couple more listener questions. David in New Jersey would like to know, do you have any uh, favorite recipes for your products? Yes. Great question. Um, so we actually have a whole, uh, a whole slew of rest, uh, recipes that we've gotten from, um, Cooks Illustrated, which Boston-based company um, that takes recipe development very seriously. So we've got a great little partnership with them where we'll, we um, have uh, a bunch of their recipes on our member pages where you can find. Um, and uh, then we also have a handful on our, our blog. I think that my one of my favorite recipes is um, one we've put we also put out, as you know, the sort of monthly mm -hmm. recipe inserts that has a sort of seasonal thing that we found, some of which are Cook's Illustrated, some of which are others. Um, one of the early ones and one of my favorite recipes is um, from the meatball shop in New York City, which is mm. sort of exactly what it sounds like, a shop specifically focused yeah. on meatballs. And they do um, no, no meatballs. And so they publish one of their core recipes. And it is... Um, it's just the, the best meatball I've ever had. The, the secret ingredient is ricotta cheese um, and they just come out really nice. So that's one of my favorite recipes. Another one, this may surprise you, but um, <laughs> it, one of my, it, it's a little bit ironic because I oppose sort of everything that they represent. Okay. However, I have this internal desire to replicate uh, popular fast food items. In Who my doesn't? Kitchen Who doesn't? Yes. Using high quality ingredients. So <laughs> I found my, I found this amazing recipe for chicken McNuggets and found myself <laughs> putting chicken 
in a blender with an egg and some salt and like grinding them up. And they came out amazing. Like, stop so it. So good. And my kids just like demolish them as you can expect. Um, and then my daughter was like, uh, daddy, are you making a chicken smoothie? <laughs> oh, oh God. Oh God. <laughs> I was like, oh, kinda, yeah. Um, so that was that was one and my uh-huh. long-time effort here. And then two, I I strongly suggest everyone do a little Google search for this. The Chicago Tribune, I think like five years ago, um, maybe not even that long ago, published the what is allegedly the original recipe for KFC. Yes. Uh-huh. And I replicated, I used it and replicated it in my own kitchen. It has an insane amount of white pepper yes. in it, which is a smelly sort of disgusting spice. It's a more pungent pepper. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and it came out like beautifully. Like I bet you could put it, you know, it might, it, uh, some MSG might've sure. put it over the top, um, okay. which I did not use. Um, <laughs> but other than that, it was like in, indistinguishable. All uh, right. I'll link to all of these recipes on the blog show notes so we can all replicate what Charlie's doing in his own kitchen. Now, Janice in Vermont wants to know, and I'm guessing she wants to know if you're going to deliver to Vermont, but how far do you deliver to your members? Not to Vermont yet, unfortunately. Um, You know, not very many people live in Vermont, uh, which is, you know, something that's changing in the midst of the pandemic. that, by the way, is a crazy statistic. So you should link to that too. I'll mm. share a, a chart with you that, that talks about um, urban migration out of the city. So uh, Vermont, I, I know, and New Hampshire is experiencing quite a bit of that. Um, but our maps are on our website. We, we basically deliver from central New Jersey all the way up to Portland, Maine, um, in sort of two discrete areas. So it's it's basically the greater New York City area and the greater Boston area plus um, Concord, New Hampshire, Portland, Maine. Um, and we so if, are you definitely- live, if you live on 95, literally, if you live on 95 from New Jersey up through yeah, Maine, yeah. there's Love a chance, that. right? About. Um, and we, uh, you know, we're continuously expanding that over time. When we first started, yeah. that was like a really small circle around Boston and mm-hmm. it's sort of expanded over time. And uh, so we're, we're continuously looking at that. That's awesome. What are some of your biggest sellers right now, you think? Well, so uh, as you know, like the core product is this share, which is a different mix of items every mm-hmm. month. So uh, you wouldn't be surprised to, to hear that that is like, you know, the bulk of what's yeah. going on the door. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do have a retail shop in, uh, in the South end of Boston, mm-hmm. uh, which, uh, is a funny little microcosm of the company because they also sell whole animals. So oh, really, really unusual for a butcher shop, but they bring in, you know, a full side of beef every week and two sides of pork and break them down from scratch. And so it's not uncommon that you see a mix of items in the case there that, uh, are very different from what you'd see in a grocery store. Um, so in terms of what, what, you know, sells really well there and on our monthly specials, it's probably sausages, um, is, is they're up there. There was a question you sent me in your notes about whether we have an in-house culinary. Yeah. I was going to ask that. Yeah. 
you know, not really officially our in-house uh, culinary team is Jason <laughs> uh, and uh, his colleague, uh, Tony in, in the shop that- You gotta have um, a guy named Tony when you're making me. Tony, Tony, Tony is uh, <laughs> an amazingly talented chef. Um, and we were lucky to, to get him from a restaurant actually in the South end around the corner. And Jason is a master butcher. And so between the two of them, they can do really cool stuff with meat. And so a lot of our sausage recipes have originated from our, our shop. Mm-hmm. Um, one of, one of my, or my favorites are the seasonal ones. So we sort of ripped off um, Sam Adams and we have uh, these different seasonal blends. So we have an Oktoberfest sausage, which is made with a local uh, microbrew, which I really love. And then we have a spring honey sausage. Um, and, uh, and I forget, and we have a um, firecracker sausage yeah, in, July. in July. Yeah. And so we sort of bring those out and, um, how do you, you know, come up with the flavors of the sausages? You know, that's a question you'd have to ask Tony. Right. Tony, uh, asking put, you, buddy. I put stuff in a bowl and sort of see what happens. It was funny. We've done some classes in the shop, uh, you know, not since, uh, well, at least a year we haven't been able to, um, but we do these cutting classes where, uh, you know, Jason will break down an entire side and talk people through it, which was just a really cool experience. And we also do sausage making classes where people get to make their own sausage. So, um, you know, on one hand, it's been amazing to see some of the blends people make in those classes. On the other hand, I've definitely watched a handful of participants just completely ruin <laughs> and pound me. Um, and it's funny to watch Tony, you know, reacting to that, just like, ooh, ah, that, I don't know that was that a one. lot of salt. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and there's no takesies backsies. Once you throw right. it in the bowl, it's, you're, right. yeah. Yeah. So we've, we've, we got to work on the curriculum a little bit too, to make sure that doesn't happen. Um, but more, more to uh, come on that when we reintroduce awesome. the classes. Awesome. Well, I can't wait to take one. What are you really excited about for the spring for some upcoming products? Because I mean, full disclosure, it's not just meat and, um, you know, sausages and things like that. You guys have a fish program. You have also some, like, I just got this, my share came two days ago. Uh, I got sauerkraut. It was awesome. Like you have so many other things. So what's new for the spring? Yeah. So we want to continually add to that in, in ways that serve our, our partner farms. Um, And so for example, we started offering buttermilk um, that is essentially a byproduct from our, you know, the partner we've our longtime partner on grass-fed butter. Mm -hmm. And so that just came out of a you know, pretty easy conversation of like, Hey, I, I have a lot of this. Would, would that be, do you think your members would be interested? And so, um, that's, that's worked out really well. I would love to see us, uh, and we're secretly working on, uh, milk, grass fed milk as well. Um, so we'll, we'll see what form that takes, but that's definitely down the road. And uh, where, there, where there's milk, there's ice cream. So saying i love the idea stuff you're already freezing stuff so i'm just saying it's true we're pretty good uh (laughs) keeping meat frozen on someone's doorstep in july but Mm -hmm. 
ice cream frozen on someone's doorstep we'll see I, that might be indifferent it'd be a lot of dry ice which yeah. is like the best if people don't know this like so when you get your share and it's even like i don't know 45 degrees outside you get this great bag of dry ice and the dry ice then becomes the most fun thing you can put in your sink and turn on and it turns your whole entire kitchen into Halloween instantly. And like, <laughs> if you have animals, children, everybody plays in the smoke from the dry. So it's really, it's a twofer that you're getting. I have had so many funny conversations about that. So on one hand, people are always saying exactly what you just said yeah. and posting on social media about it, to which I always have to say like, hey, you know, we do sell meat as well. Like that is... <laughs> the core product um but i'm glad you're enjoying the dry ice yeah right uh and then the other funny interaction uh is you know related to um some people unfortunate and hopefully they're not listening to this um but some people unfortunately did not take high school chemistry and oh. so are very concerned about those you know vapors being something oh, harmful when in fact it is carbon dioxide right uh, and so anyway, those have been some funny That's conversations. So funny. That is so funny. Um, okay. Just a couple more questions and then sure. you're free to go. Uh, I know that obviously environmental causes, sustainability is huge and near and dear to your heart. What do you feel that we as individuals can do to reduce our carbon footprint, even if it's something small? Yeah. Um, it's a good question because I remember watching an inconvenient truth mm -hmm. and just being taken away by the quality of the data and the presentation in that movie and being so incredibly disappointed at the end of it when the suggestion was turn off your lights and change your light bulbs. I know. It was like, those don't even come close, like do that, definitely do that. Yeah. But yeah those don't even come close to addressing the enormity of the problem. Um, and so I think what makes the difference is uh, being an advocate for things that do really matter. So for me, for example, in my own life, that has been like this substantial offshore wind project that would, would displace uh, you know, several coal plants versus uh, of electricity. Um, being engaged in those types of projects are one are things I think that really move the needle. Um, that's not to say don't discount your own personal consumption either. Um, I think growing your own vegetables and um, being really discerning around where your food comes from also makes a tremendous difference. Um, the, that I think where that really becomes uh, interesting and frankly challenging personally for most people is when you have to do it in difficult situations. So when you're at a restaurant, mm -hmm. um, I, I feel really uncomfortable at a restaurant asking sort of detailed questions around where the meat is coming from. Sure. Um, and so maybe I'm just a avoiding potential conflict or I don't want to, if you've seen, there's an episode of Portlandia that yeah. is just like hilariously goes. It was, wasn't it about like chickens or something? And yes. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. So mm -hmm. I, I just can't, I can't really bring myself to do that. And so I just by and large avoid meat in those situations. Um, and that's not to say like, you know, you don't have to apply a, 
a hundred percent perfect record to that. In fact, I was just, I just caught up with, um, you know, one of the early investors in Walden and, and who's been a great partner of mine for a long time. And he's like, yeah, once a year, I have this guilty pleasure of like getting a bucket of chicken at KFC. And I don't tell my wife and I eat it alone in my van. <laughs> the shame. The shame <laughs> van. Oh my God. And it's like, that's, that's great. Like we're all hypocrites. Like yeah. do, do doing that every once in a while is like in many ways, I think supports your ability to like do it on an ongoing basis. So yeah. we can't, we can't all be like crazy zealots and allow yourself to, to break the rules every once in a while and, and not apply that, um, that, uh, sort of binary thing to it. But on the other hand, take the opportunities when you can to like have those conversations with other people about the positive. So I'll tell you what doesn't work from an advocacy perspective. If you go out to a restaurant with 10 of your best friends and you make a big deal with the server about where the meat comes from and you sort of shame the other people in at the table and you talk you have the conversation we just had about gestation crates and debeaking yeah. chickens at the dinner table. Uh, one, people might hate you. And two, you're probably not actually influencing them. And that's, that's what's always bothered me about, um, you know, you see these PETA campaigns or, or, um, or uh, sort of animal rights advocacy groups and totally respect and appreciate what they're trying to do. But for me personally, and I think for many other people too, those negative images are very um, fleeting. They're very ephemeral. You sort of, they might affect your behavior for a day, yeah. but they're so violent and so abrasive that they just make you feel a little bit guilty. And then the next day, those same people are going and getting a, a hamburger at McDonald's. Yeah, and so totally. It was for me too, the same way of like, it, it affected me, but very in very short period of time and sort of, uh, not fundamentally. What fundamentally changed my view was the positive. It's mm. like the experience of eating this chicken that was grown by your neighbors and this amazing conversation that results from that when you've got friends around the table talking about that, that's what changed those people's mm. minds. That's a great and point. So if it's like we we try to do that as a company and I try to do that as an individual, of like you tell this amazingly positive story about where this stuff came from and why the taste is different and why it's important from a climate perspective and an animal welfare perspective and everything else. And like that, that moves people down that spectrum. Um, and I've found those types of, of, um, of messages and behavior changes to be longer lasting than the sort of the negative jarring ads. Yeah. yeah, I agree. Beautifully said. Beautifully Thank said. You. Thank so you. How can people find you guys? So our website uh, on the World Wide Web uh, <laughs> is www. Do people still say that? W- yeah, th- thanks to Al Gore. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> now I will be exposed as a true liberal believer when I start defending right. the fact that, in fact, he I know I'm with you. Early supporter of the internet. I'm with you. No, no, no. I was just kidding. Yeah. Inventing it is is a bridge to stretch. Yeah. Um. Anyway, the the website is Walden W A L D E N localmeat.com. 
Uh, and you can sign up for a share there, read our FAQs. Uh, you can certainly shoot us an email at any time as well, or give us a call. Um, we have lovely people that will chat on the phone as, as long as you want. I've, I've experienced it. You do. And I love them. So I have one last question for you. Sure. If COVID wasn't a thing and money was no option, where would you go and what would you eat on your food adventure? Wow. This was not on your list no. of potential <laughs> questions. To so take all the time you want to answer that. <laughs> so if you really want to, I just can't help it. This is such a yeah, do it. advocacy answer to this question. Sure. However, I just can't resist. Um, if you really want to understand our food system, you have to go to the, the Central Valley in California. Mm -hmm. And if you look at this on a satellite map of the US, it's like the whole US is sort of brownish. And there's this big, almost neon green crescent moon in the middle of California that is the Central Valley. And that valley produces crazy numbers, like 80% of the world's almonds, um, yeah. 40, 50, 60% of various other cash crops like lettuce and strawberries mm -hmm. and raspberries. Um, and in some ways it's incredibly efficient. In other ways, it is um, teetering on the edge of failure because if somebody shuts off the water um, and I'll leave it to you to, to sort of say who that somebody is. Yep. I lived in California as well. So I completely understand where you're going with this. It, it's grapes of wrath, dust bowl again. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, it's just a really interesting place to observe our industrial food system and its, its costs and benefits. It's a funny place to share a meal though, because the only places to eat along the 99 through the 99 is the sort of main highway yeah. through the Valley, uh, are sort of Arby's and McDonald's and, and fast food places. Um, and so it's this funny little, uh, dichotomy where the, folks that are harvesting this food are quite literally not able to partake in the fruits of their labor. Mm -hmm. uh, and so anyhow, that, that's probably where I'd go. I, I take my kids, take my wife, and we will enjoy a lovely uh, McDonald's happy meal <laughs> overlooking some of the largest and most productive uh, farms yeah. in the world. And we will question our, our future. I agree. And I think there's a lot to be said. Like I said, I lived in Southern California for about eight years and, you know, seeing the workers who are not getting paid enough, who are exploited and just knowing that the majority of the produce that is grazed there is now going out as a cash crop and making people millions, if not billions of dollars in some cases. And there's no trickle down to these food desert type areas that literally could use a farmer's market, could use, and the, the people there can't even afford it because they're not getting paid a fair wage for what they're doing either. So it's a huge, it's a huge thing. I agree. So that was a great answer. Love it. For, All uh, right. Uh, and there, and by the way, like the, the, maybe we'd have some, uh, some strawberries or something as dessert from that meal. Yeah. Strawberries from, from the central Valley that particularly those that were picked green and travel across the country, compare those to strawberries you get here in new England in the two in the weeks, yeah, two weeks of the year, you can get them in season. <laughs> 
No, I mean, it is dramatically different. Like I, yeah. I've never tasted strawberries like that, that I've like picked hot out of the fields. Yeah. Um, that is just, that's what a strawberry really is. Yeah. Um, and some people celebrate the fact that we can now get strawberries year round by virtue of this efficient system. Um, and, and we can, and that's wonderful, but, uh, in some ways those are not, those are not real strawberries. No, know? I agree. And I, um, when I, I spent some time in Italy and when we were there, just seeing how like that culture eats seasonally and it's something to be really celebrated and, and get excited about like when artichoke season comes and that's what you eat then for, you know, a month or two. And then you start seeing asparagus and you, that's what you eat for a month or two. So I agree that it tastes a million times better eat seasonally, support your local farms, support your local CSAs, support Walden. Charlie, I can't thank you enough for coming on. This was such a pleasure. And I am so glad to now have my new best friend, Charlie from Walden. And I really, I can't thank you enough. So thank you. Thank you for having me, Elizabeth. It's been a fun conversation. Hopefully I uh, inspired more people than I insulted. Oh, you always do. You always <laughs> do. Until next time, my friend. All right. Take care, Elizabeth. Wow. What an incredible conversation that was. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Charlie, thank you again so much for taking time to chat with us. It really, really, really meant a lot. Everyone go check out Walden Local Meat on their website. Go on their Instagram. Sign up if you're local. Honestly, I love it. And again, this was not a sponsored podcast. It's just a company I really believe in. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. You know how to find me. Let's go on a food adventure at gmail.com. Let's go on a food adventure on Instagram. My website, elizabethrfuller.com. You guys, again, thank you. Lead with kindness. Take care of one another. And I'll see you next week. Bye.